Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest today is recording from the space that has been cared for by the Kawia, Tongva, Luceno, and Serrano peoples. My guest, who I'm incredibly excited to have on and be talking to today, is Dylan Rodriguez, who is a professor of media and cultural studies at UC Riverside. His research focuses on how historical regimes and logics of racial and racial colonial violence become normalized features of everyday state, cultural, and social social formations. He is currently president of the American Studies Association and serving as a freedom scholar working towards social and economic justice. He is the author of Forced Passages, Imprisoned Radical Intellectuals in the U.S. Prison Regime, Suspended Apocalypse, White Supremacy, Genocide, and Filipino Condition, and most recently, White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare, and the Logics of Genocide. Thank you so much for being in conversation today, Professor Rodriguez. Right on. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just say that I'm speaking from uh, Corona, California, which is occupied a Tongva Kawia land. And the place where I work is just down the street from where Taisha Miller's life was stolen by the Riverside Police Department in 1998. Perfect. Thank you uh, for that. And and we'll as as get into sort of the logics behind those, the, both the occupied land and police murders um, throughout this. And I, and I want to start broadly and with some history. I want to start going back to Reconstruction, which was a transformation in American society, the original Reconstruction period right after the Civil War. And, and I want to ask you, because you focused a lot on sort of the logics that perpetuate from this period, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment, the big constitutional amendments that were passed, redefined and reframed our understanding of citizenship, of freedom, of belonging, of punishment. And so I want to ask broadly, how do these, how does this period frame our understanding of freedom and citizenship and what logics and what ideas have persisted since reconstruction well i think i think 99.9% of the answer to the question can be found by going back to w.e.b. du bois's classic durable permanent text black reconstruction if if we if we think and teach and 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 just work through du bois's insight um uh regarding what what really is the formation of a foundationally colonial anti-black U.S. modernity at that moment. It, it answers almost all of these questions with as much rigor and nuance as we could expect, you know, almost 100 years, actually more than 100 years later at this point. Um, I think the only thing I would add to Du Bois's durable scholarship on this would really be corollary to his, to his, to his insights. And that's to think about how it is and to insist that we continue to think about what Du Bois was already thinking about, which is how it is that the logic of slavery as a mode of social organization, not merely as a form of of economic organization, not merely as a legal and and kind of criminalizing um, juridical apparatus, not merely as kind of distribution of land and maldistribution of land, not merely as an occupation of land, but as a mode of sociality. How does that slavery, anti-Black chattel, is a mode of sociality, how, how that mode of sociality is directly reflected and, and, and continued, sustained as it's refurbished by the litany of constitutional amendments that happened to instantiate U.S. modernity in the immediate postbellum period. Um, what people call reconstruction, but what really ends up becoming an antagonism between a black freedom praxis that is trying to prevail on some of the gendered racial components of an emergent U.S. modernity by way of seizing on a certain kind of apparatus of the state, um, running running black men primarily um, because of the gendered nature of citizenship and 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 you know the ballot and whatnot, but running running black people for office, um, trying to seize a certain form of state power uh, for the purposes of uh, kind of redistributing the resources and the access, resources of the state and access to certain state institutions, including what becomes public education. So, so you have that project that's happening as Black Reconstruction, 
And then you have a confederacy that never died, right? A confederacy that was never actually fully defeated. There's a kind of narrative of military defeat that is not adequate to the task of describing the persistent um, and, and in some cases, renaissance moments of Confederate power that not only surged after the Civil War, but surged to this day. Right? The Confederate power is something that surges to this day. The, you know, folks that wave those flags throughout the Deep South, the not so deep South and the North. I mean, that shit is everywhere. Right. So we got to acknowledge that the Confederacy is not limited to the former Confederate states. It's, it's, a, it's a mode of sociality. It's not even just an ideology, right? It, it's a mode of sociality. It's a way that people want to understand their relations to each other in this place we call the social. Um, that that is already present in the Reconstruction, uh, in what we might call the Reconstruction Amendments from the 13th to the 14th and onward. So, so the one thing I'll emphasize, though, is that if we understand the logic of slavery as a form of power relation, meaning meaning as a paradigm of power relation in which clearly anti-Black chattel is central and foundational to that power relation. That, that paradigm of power is what structures access, as well as definitions um, of citizenship, national identity, and, and that term we use all the time, but we usually, you know, people will mean opposite things by freedom, right, when we say freedom. Uh, so so I'll, I'll say that the, th this particular chattel anti-Black power relation as a paradigmatic power relation becomes constitutive of criminal justice as a totality, right? The entire structure of criminal justice jurisprudence, the way we understand criminal justice as part of U.S. modernity is constituted by a chattel anti-Black power relation. And so, so this is just to say that, that it is inadequate, it is insufficient to limit um, our discussions of the impact of something like the 13th Amendment to incarceration. It's, it, that's limited, right? That's a primary site in which it manifests, but that's, that's, not, that's not the only site. And there's an argument to be made that, 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 that incarceration, meaning prisons and jails, are, might not even be the primary site in which we see the logic of the 13th Amendment, the constituting logic of the 13th Amendment manifesting. Um, and the one, one other thing I'll say as, as we kind of move into the conversation a bit is I think we need to be really clear that the way the 13th Amendment produces um, the forms of U.S. You know, criminalization and incarceration that happened after the Civil War into the present day, meaning into 2021, are not guided by an attachment to slave labor. There, there, there's this narrative that goes, I, in my lifetime anyways, it, it's traceable to the late 1990s, in which a lot of progressive well-meaning progressive organizations, people, and communities um, paid a lot of attention to the ways that private prisons were exploiting a very small number of incarcerated people to engage in cheap or basically unpaid labor, meaning slave labor, to support um, the mundane uh, kind of um, blue-collar repetitive labor of certain corporations, right? Um, like Pizza Hut, Victoria's Secret. I mean, there are all these corporations that, that, that people identified as exploiting incarcerated, what amounted to incarcerated slave labor. And it really caught on because it, it, that image appeals to a certain liberal and liberal progressive sensibility about what ought not happen in these here United States, right? It offended people. Like that's the word I'll use. It offended people. So it got a lot of traction. It actually got way too much traction um, in the sense that there then became this, this narrative that overwhelmed its own usefulness, that the reason to challenge oppose and even abolish the, the criminalization incarceration regime in the United States was because it was based on slave labor. Well, that's not really the case, right? That's not to say that people who are incarcerated don't engage in labor, but it is to say that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated don't have jobs in prison and jail, right? That's not the logic of what keeps people incarcerated. The logic of people, keeping people incarcerated is something which is related to the institution of slavery in the sense it's about social liquidation. It's about eliminating people, entire entire populations of people from, from, from recognition and participation in what we call U.S. civil society, U.S. citizenship, and all these forms that of, 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 of being, really, of subjectivity and being that make up U.S. modernity. So it's that logic. It is that anti-Black chattel logic, the notion of being owned by the state and also, by extension, 
of being subject to the whims of a white supremacist, anti-black civil society more generally. That is what gets passed on by the 13th Amendment. It, it's, not, it's not primarily, not even remotely primarily, slave labor. It's about the slave relation. It's about the chattel relation. So, so what I want people to think about is how it is that this anti-black chattel relation becomes paradigmatic and therefore then gets translated um, uh, in, in, into an institutional form that, that impacts black folks primarily foundationally and overwhelmingly in an asymmetrical way. Right. But which is also no longer exclusive to only impacting black people. Right. This, this is this is what this is what incarcerated, you know, black radical activists, revolutionaries and thinkers um, always reflect on um, pretty consistently in their writing and in their talking is say that, you know, when 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 their comrades, meaning their non-black comrades, especially their non-black um, brown and yellow and red comrades, when 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 they come into contact with each other at these sites of incarceration, there seems to be a fairly consistent identification that they're all encountering anti-Black state violence, that they're encountering this particular modality of state violence that is no that is no less genocidal than other forms of state violence. But but it's it's well and white white incarcerated white people have this history of saying the same thing, right? That they say you know you know we are we are incarcerated white people, but the closest that we will ever be able to understand and relate to what Black experience feels like and looks like in this hemisphere is the site of incarceration because we can, we, we see how it is that this place is an anti-black place. And they sometimes experience that by way of kind of relative, relative, you know, what people call white privilege. There's a real interesting and bizarre way that so-called white privilege manifests at sites of incarceration. So I'm saying that they can even identify it that way. So that those are the things I would want to think about as the relevant and powerful and lasting conversations we have to have about this period that unfolds after the civil war. Um, after the ostensible abolition of the slave plantation, but really it's translation into carceral slavery. That's really what it is. Um, and that's not to mention the fact that, you know, Black Reconstruction, as Du Bois remind, uh, uh, kind of illustrates so deeply, right, just so deeply, is, is that the Confederacy was part of the Union. Like, literally, Union as a verb. Right. The Confederacy was, Confederacy was central to the Union, to the remaking of the United States as a, as a nation state after the Civil War that, you know, that devastated geography, devastated family, you know, took all these casualties of, of, of you know, across across different you know, generations of white people. Um, that their reconstituting moment was about centering the needs and the desires of the Confederacy in remaking Union, remaking National Union. That That's the antagonism. So what if we think about that as you know, another guiding paradigm for U.S. nation building. And that is, I think, the moment that the United States and its inhabitants have been in for about the last half century, right? That you, that you fast forward from the Civil War about one century, you have, you have the nominal downfall of U.S. apartheid, so-called Jim and Jane Crow apartheid. And, and then you have this long and still unfolding period of national remaking, of nation building, that is that is coming to terms with the fact that 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 this that this that this um, succeeding foundationally anti-black institution, meaning apartheid, um, is is nominally abolished, but which is immediately in continuity succeeded by all of these other formations of anti-black sociality, um, you know, which we can talk about. Yeah, I, absolutely. There's so much there, and that's so interesting. I wanna I wanna sort of how you're framing this period since the civil war is very much the 13th amendment as a reform it didn't change the underlying social relations um it didn't change the underlying anti-blackness and i want to i want to sort of think about this period the last 150 years especially the last 50 years um as this period of reform um whether that goes from chattel slavery to carceral slavery to uh, Jim Crow to mass incarceration, there's sort of this narrative that's drawn. And there, there are some complications and problems within that direct narrative. But I think the underlying power relations of anti-Blackness, of chattel anti-Blackness persist. And so with these various reforms, and I mean, you mentioned the campaign in the 90s against uh, of businesses against private prisons. And you hear now uh, people fighting to end private prisons, which is Great, but it's only about six or seven percent of incarcerated people are in private facilities. Um, 
So I want to ask, like, how does does framing this as a system of reform help perpetuate anti-blackness and colonial systems? And how does it how does how does that framing kind of hinder the work of abolishing these systems or abolishing these these uh, colonial or power relations? Well, I think I think it's really important to, to pay attention to how it is that there's this body of what you what you can kind of variously call abolitionist scholarship, um, critical prison, critical carceral study scholarship, um, feminist abolitionist scholarship, black studies scholarship, uh, to a increasing extent queer and trans studies scholarship. Um, and by scholarship, by the way, I don't just mean academic scholarship, y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about people who are scholarly activists, scholarly organizers who, who you know, don't necessarily have a day job in a university or college, but who are engaged in knowledge production, teaching, you know, and, and most importantly, critically intervening on some of the bullshit liberal narratives that so many movements and organizations are tethered to in part because of the work of the nonprofit industrial complex, meaning that you have foundations and think tanks that are actively funding a certain kind of reformist narrative as, as being the kind of streams of of uh, capital that will sustain um, nonprofit and grassroots community organizations. Um, so, so I think the folks I'm thinking about are the ones who challenge those 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 paradigms and those canons, which I think ultimately are, are are dangerous. I actually think that they're deadly. I think those liberal those liberal those liberal narratives are actually deadly. I think they actually kill people. They actually expose people to, to you know preventable illness and damage and harm. Um, the thing I want to value about the question and the way you've just framed it is is this i would say we need to narrate the united states as a national project as a nation building project the united states is a reformist beast that's what the united states actually is right that, that from its very foundations what the united states actually has always been um self-narrating itself self you know self-narrating as as a kind of you know global purveyor emblem and leader of doing is constant reform Right, constant reform. The the other layer of questions we need to honor, which many communities and populations of people have asked for many many years, is okay. Reforming and and shifting for whom, and for what purposes? Okay, it's 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 by raising those questions that you can get at the violence and the pitfalls of reformism. Reformism that is as as an ideology, as a paradigm of statecraft, of social change, of social movement that is attached to the existing relations, the existing fundamental institutions and relations that constitute modernity and which don't seek to overturn them, but really seek to adjust them in order to sustain them. That's what reformism is. It's about sustaining existing institutions and existing relations of power in such a way that they will survive a period of crisis. That's what reformism is. That's what the United States is. The United States is about a constant negotiation uh, of, of various forms and intensities of crisis, meaning oppositional, transformative, revolutionary, liberationist, anti-colonial, black freedom movements that, that are actually seeking, envisioning, and, and in many cases already manifesting the end of the United States as such, right? The end of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a half millennium, you know, hemispheric genocidal chattel project that we call civilization with a capital C, right? What, what these movements oftentimes reflect is a vision and a practice that already demonstrates the obsolescence of civilization with a capital C. What does the United States do and what is it so expert and genius in as a national project, meaning it's state intellectuals and it's civil society extra state intellectuals, including academics. What it's genius at is in, in both repressing those movements through uh, militarizations of the state, you know, severe and brutal state repression, but also, and this is what my book is about, um, this is what the book White Reconstruction is about, but also through mobilizing a certain epistemic, curricular, and institutional apparatus that will attempt to absorb uh, the rhetorics and some of the personnel that are affiliated with those movements to signify enough of a reformist change in the fabric of the nation-building project to quell the opposition. Right. So it's both. It's simultaneously simultaneously a militarization of the state to crush revolutionaries, black liberationists, anti-colonial, indigenous 
activists, you know, trans abolitionists, etc. Right? It's the militarization of the state to crush that through police power, through surveillance, through all that kind of shit. Right? But but it is also the mobilization mobilization of an entire political cultural epistemic apparatus to to do its best to undermine the integrity of those transformative abolitionist, you know, decolonial black liberation, black radical movements by way of you know, in vulgar terms, stealing the rhetoric, stealing the symbols, stealing the significations, and 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 pushing them into other modalities, which I've already referred to on the one hand as you know the nonprofit industrial complex, which has risen to a certain kind of hegemony over the last four decades, in direct response to the swell of radical movements through the 1950s and 1960s into the early 1970s. Right, that's what the NPIC really is. It's it's a re- it's a reaction to that, and you can see it in the archive. Of, of foundation heads um, and also, you know, certain defecting pe- people who certain people who defected from the radical movements to kind of join themselves to certain reformist projects. You can see it in that archive. Um, so so it's 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 in part that but it's also the academic projects, the way that academia, you know, that's that's my kind of profession. Right. Like I'm in this field of people who identify as academics. And I think, by, by the way, just full transparency, I increasingly disidentify with the term academic, even though I, don't, I, even though I know I'm implicated in it. Um, I'm not delusional. Like I understand where my paycheck is coming from this horrible beast called the University of California, right? There, there's, there's very few institutions that have caused more genocidal violence than the University of California um, in the history of this fucking planet, right? Very few. So I understand where my paycheck is coming from. But I also want to say that um, there's a certain position that one aspires to when when they identify as an academic right and i think it's that aspiration that lends itself to being toxified by the reformist um response right like i think so-called academics and this thing we call this aspiration we name as academia are completely um solicitous of a certain kind of reformism that that crucially presents itself as being something other than reformism right yeah, absolutely. That it perpetuates those underlying logics and underlying systems of harm. Um, and and I want to ask you. I, I I have two. I have a number of questions, but two things off that. And I want to. I'm going to get back to academia and sort of the university as the system afterwards. But first, I I want to go into a little bit of what you're saying with this reformism, um, and sort of these moments of militarized and institutional squashing of radical freedom movements. And in understanding the long history of the US as this nation building project, this reformist project, are these freedom movements an aberration? Is there sort of, or or should we think of the like militarization and the backlash as a backlash to a sustained narrative of progress? Yeah, well, I'll say this, I think, I think, the answer to the question of whether I'm intrigued by the question, first of all, let me say that I think it's a really great question to ask the question of whether freedom movements are an aberration or not. Um, in, in some ways, I think that is one of the key questions that our folks who are listening to this, we need to think about that really closely in a really system, very collectively. We have to think about this collectively too, all the time, because there is in fact um, a kind of enforced and dominant narrative that emerges from, you know, these kind of respectable left to the to, to the not very respectable far right, right, across that whole spectrum, that does in fact frame different freedom movements as unusual occurrences, that these are that they're in that they're relatively historically, temporally, geographically compartmentalized. Right? So you, you see it, you see it and hear it and feel it happening right now. Um, with with these narrations and revisions of what's been going on and still is going on for about the last twelve to thirteen months, right? Um, ever, ever since, ever since you know the horrific images of what amounts to a street assassination of George Floyd, right? Which then which then brings us back to thinking about Breonna Taylor, you know Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant, like you know we think about so so what is important here is that part of the U.S. reformist um, uh, sociality is that it is invested in compartmentalizing freedom movements as relatively limited insurgencies, relatively limited insurrections, that they are the exceptions to a generalized rule of, um, of, of kind of incremental progress, 
You know, that is that is the overarching narrative. That's why I call it a reformist beast. Right. This is this is what it means. It's, it's about in, uh, kind of incrementalist narration of itself as progressive nation building. Um, what what the, the, the narrative that I think disrupts this is twofold. One is to think about the perpetuity of freedom struggle. Right. I mean, this is any any. I would say even casual. I was about to say serious. I like forget serious. Any casual, <laughs> any casual interaction with the long and at this point highly accessible body of knowledge, of thought, of po- I'm talking about poetry, art, autobiography, fiction, you know, scholarly texts, essays, everything, like all these different forms of art, knowledge, production, and beauty that are produced by freedom movements. So, you know, we can name them, right? Puerto Rican independence struggle. All the various iterations of black liberation, black freedom struggle, the various iterations of what we call abolition, which is you know inherently tied to black radicalism, um, radical feminist struggle across across different communities and geographies. You know, um, I, what I think is really vibrant in the last twenty years, which is which is which is uh, uh, trans abolitionist thought and practice and organizing. We could go down the line, but if you if you look at struggles, freedom struggles like those. If you look at them even casually, what you see is that they're always engaged perpetually in organizing struggle, knowledge, production, thought, and beauty. Always. Like they, that shit never goes away. Um, even if you look at specific uprisings, right? Like you, let's say you identify um, something like Denmark VC's rebellion. You identify something like Stonewall. You identify something like the Puerto Rican Independentista's seizure of the Capitol building. You look at, you look at these particular moments if you do a tracing, you know, if you do study, just basic collective study of where they came from and what enabled them, you realize that that's it was in formation for, for multiple generations, right? It wasn't just a couple of years. Like this stuff was produced by multiple generations of ongoing struggle. The form and the appearance of the struggle might not be readily identifiable because it doesn't take the form of necessarily mass protests, demonstrations, or for that matter, plantation rebellion. Um, but for folks who have devoted their lives to studying this stuff, you know, I'm thinking about Sarah Haley's book here, you know, the way Sarah Haley is talking about um, this long genealogy that goes into the making of, of, uh, of, of, of you know, misogynist, anti-black, gender, you know, Jim and Jane Crow modernity. Um, you, what you find is that freedom struggle among, in this case, incarcerated and criminalized black women, you know, during and prior the rise of U.S. apartheid was perpetual. That shit never went anywhere. So, so okay. So, I think on the one hand, there's a narrative that that I think is important, which is one of perpetuity, perpetuity, um, you know, resilience, sustenance, and power. Like that's what this is about, right? Trying to build relatively autonomous, self-determining modes of being. That's power. That's what I mean by power. By the way, I don't mean like seizing state power, getting elected office. I mean, I mean autonomous, self-sustaining, liberated, liberated practices of power, collective power. But I also think this is about asymmetry, right? And these two things seem to be at odds with each other, perpetuity and, and asymmetry, right? Part of what I think confounds certain attempts at, at narrating um, the, these long histories of U.S. national formation and nation building is the fact that various forms of asymmetrical violence and suffering are what actually define the U.S. as a nation-building reformist beast. They, they're what define the civilizational project, again, with a capital C, right? Asymmetry is what defines the civilizational project. And for, for our purposes, I would just emphasize the asymmetries of directed, targeted warfare. You know, whether it's land conquest, whether it's the war that is takes the form of the transatlantic trade, right? The war that takes the shape of the plantation, the war that... Uh, produces what is the modern reform of the U.S. prison apparatus, right? These are forms of asymmetrical warfare. So that's hard to narrate, right? You can't really narrate that through some kind of overarching historical narrative unless you smash out the asymmetry. That's why we have phrases nowadays like mass incarceration, by the way. You know, if you look at how that phrase has been stolen by a certain kind of think tank foundation academic apparatus, um, it still has ties to what I think are its origins, which is black radical abolitionist movements that talk about mass incarceration implicitly and often explicitly as a mass targeting of black populations, black geographies for criminalization and incarceration. But there's a weird way that that phrase has been spun into something different now where um, I think part of the intent 
of relying on that phrase is to convince, you know, kind of everybody, including white people, Asian American people, you know, non-black folks, that they have an equal stake in the suffering that's produced by criminalization and incarceration, right? So that's what I'm saying. That's mass incarceration, the way it's being used right now, in my view, is trying to is trying to dilute the fact of the asymmetry of criminalization and domestic war that happens. So I think we need to insist on the asymmetry, right? Because And the reason I use that phrase, by the way, is because that's, that's a phrase that's legible to a lot of people when they think about warfare, right? When they say asymmetrical warfare, as opposed to conventional, asymmetrical war means that the casualties tend to be one-sided, you know? And I think, so I think I use that term, you know, in a kind of purposeful way, you know, maybe one day I won't, I won't use that term, but right now I'm using that term because I think it emphasizes a disruption and a certain kind of reformist and liberal narrative of continuity and of perpetuity that isn't the kind of perpetuity I'm talking about. Yeah, and I think it, it works very well. And I mean, building on um, Elizabeth Hinton's new book, who, who she shows these freedom movements and these rebellions, these urban rebellions in the late 60s and 1970s. And one of the, the larger narrative points she makes is that while violence, um, and forceful means of protest has declined, has gotten more peaceful since the 1960s and 1970s. The state's violence response, the police response has gotten more and more violent. Um, that there's these diverging paths of, of violence and of harm. It, and I wanna, I wanna switch though for a second to go back to what you had, I mean, there's so much that we can talk about, but I wanna go back to what you said about the university and being an academic and sort of the real that that these aren't necessarily the sites of knowledge production, but they're often they often co-op or co-opt um, knowledge and radical movements. So I want to ask with a start with a big provocative question: Does the university, does the academy, need to be abolished and entirely reimagined, or is there an opportunity for real radical reenvisioning within the current system? You know, I'm I'm of like multiple minds on this. I think, I think you know, for for way too many students, staff, faculty, and even some administrators, I think colleges and universities as institutions they suck up way too much of our energy and emotional attachment and um, aspiration as it as it is. You know, I think it's probably not uncommon for people in any profession to say that about their you know, employing institutions that they're a vortex, they're a vortex of, of, of bullshit, you know, um, that, that kind of suck you in and make you think there's no world outside of it. So on the one hand, I would like, I would want to say, fuck you to the question in a way. I don't mean to you, Alex. <laughs> I'm not saying fuck you to you. <laughs> I, 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 I'd want to say fuck you to the question in a certain kind of way, in the sense that, you know, who gives a shit about whether or not, we actually challenge and abolish these particular institutions. That probably will happen. You know, that'll probably happen as the corollary outcome of the forms of abolition struggle that a lot of people are engaged in and continue to be engaged in and are aspiring to be engaged in as we, as we, as we talk today, you know, um, I think that's more likely to be um, the, uh, the, 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 the impact on institutions like this, when we think about existing movements. Now, that's one That's one mind, right? One mind say, fuck you, right? The other mind is the opposite, right? So I'm just being transparent about this because I'm, I'm, I'm in both of these places, right? The other mind is saying this, which is if we actually, if we actually look historically and analytically at the role that colleges and universities have played um, in, in, in the long project of civilization, these are some of the central institutions of, of colonial genocidal plantation violence, apartheid violence, et cetera, right? These are some of the central sites in which that violence is imagined, you know, that is translated into curricula and epistemology. It's, it's, it's canonized as art and performance. It's archived, I mean, actively archived. Um, and for that matter, you know, the sites where certain forms of knowledge practice and pedagogy crystallize and reproduce the violence that is happening right next door on the street. I mean, we see this with what's happened very recently with, um, I don't even know how to phrase it, with, with, with what's happened with the remains of some of the children from MOVE who were bombed by the Philadelphia police, right? The fact that you have a university that is exploiting their remains in, this, in, in the way that's just recently, just days ago was exposed. I mean, this is, this is the university 
in a morbid way. This is the university at its best, right? Please take that the way I mean it, right? This is this is what the university, what academia in, in that kind of genocidal term, the genocidal terms in which academia coheres itself, this exemplifies it. So it's not exceptional, it is exemplary, right? It is symptomatic. So I'm of that mind too, which is say that, you know, I actually think that challenging the constitutive power structures that cohere universities and colleges, I believe that doing that has the, the inverse effect of my previous mind that was speaking, which say that if you can actually generate critical heat, critical antagonism and disruption at that particular site in the university and college, I think, I think it potentially enables or pro, even provokes the same kind of radical struggle, creative and beautiful disruption and, 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 and like autonomous forms of being um, in other sites as well. You know, and I wouldn't want to predict what those sites are, but, but so I'm of both minds, right? Like I, I and I think it, in a certain way to me, it makes sense because on the one hand, I want to fight off this notion that the university and the college are everything, but that's all that fucking matters. Cause that's what these places try to do to us. You know, they try to convince us, oh, you know, you're a professor, you're a student here, like while you are here, you know, University of California or whatever it might be, Stanford or Princeton or, you know, University of Texas, you're weird. This place is all that matters to you and you should have all your investments here. So I'm trying to fight that off while also saying that I feel like a lot of us have a real shared responsibility to have an analysis of the relations of global dominance that crystallize at these sites of employment and work. And understand that if to the extent that we are situated to pose a threat to that dominance and a threat, especially to the normalization of that violence, we got to embrace that collectively and do it. Right. And you can you can see how, you know, there's we don't have we probably we probably can't get at it today, except except, you know, I would just encourage people to think about and look at how it is that in the history of relatively productive, I don't want to say successful, I'll say relatively productive, radical and revolutionary movements, oftentimes in modern in the modern period. Um, it's it, it, oftentimes it's been radical mobilizations of organizing at sites of so-called higher education, meaning universities and colleges that have been part and parcel and sometimes periodically central to creating and sustaining those radical revolutionary movements. Right. That 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 stands to be emphasized. And I think, frankly, it's what terrifies university administrators. Right? Is, is, is universities and colleges becoming central sites of that kind of radicalism and revolutionary aspirational struggle. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that's so important that the threat to that dominance, um, both the university and in society is so important. And and, and I just want to ask you as a quick, because you've been involved um, in movements like Cops Off Campus, which has grown uh, in, in prominence this last year, as well as I think in this last, the last week or two, um, during the, the war in the Middle East between Israel and Gaza, the American Studies Association was one of the, which you led, was one of the only academic listservs I'm on to send out um, a message of solidarity. And I wanna, I wanna ask sort of what role students, faculty, staff, administrators, scholars in the academic, in the like traditional academic sense have um, in responding to the, the broader hegemonic system, um, and how to sort of make the academy uh, a radical place. So, so I don't think you make the academy a radical place at all. I don't think that's a project. Um, I don't think it's a viable project. Um, uh, I'm not being, I don't, I don't think I'm being nihilistic or pessimistic. I just don't think it's a good investment of time and energy and organizing resources. So I, so like transforming this for, in part, because what we call the academy, like I said before, it's not, it, it's, it's aspirational. Right. And so and so it's hard to organize for a transformation of something that is already aspirational in, you know, in a, in a predominantly very bad way. Right. Aspirational, bad way um, in a petty bourgeois way. For a lot of people I know, it's a reactionary way oftentimes. Um, and because it's so constituted by a certain kind of respectable professionalism, um, I, I don't think that's a feasible project. Now, that's not to say that it's not a field of struggle. Nonetheless, that's number one. Um but but what I will also say is that it provides enough raw material to prevail on people, to appeal to people, to get engaged in forms of collective work. And I emphasize collective work, Collect, by which I mean collective study, collective thought, collective writing, you know what I mean? Collective art. Um, 
so it's not it's not it's not just the traditional notions of collective organizing that people have in their heads as 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 linked to social movements. I'm talking about various forms of collective making, right, and collective creativity. Th- there's enough of in a, a kind of communing um, of people who are interested in doing that kind of labor, right? That I think that there is a lot of promise to appeal to um, uh, the attachment and the investment people have in knowledge, aesthetic, and beauty in the in these professional realms, right? Um, to to uh, uh, strategically focus on on these institutions and sites and networks as sites of intervention, right? So I actually think there's value to that, right? I just don't think that the I don't think that the goal is to transform academia necessarily. I think it's to it's to kind of activate and um and and maybe push on people who are part of that aspirational community to engage in other kinds of shit. That's really what it is, right? Like what is it what does it mean? Like even if you maintain the aspiration of being an academic and all that kind of stuff, which is weird for all for I think for most people I know it's a weird aspiration anyways. It's at best uncomfortable, you know? Um so even if you even if you're struggling with that, like what does it do for you to to be challenged and pushed and also embraced in, in, in a different set of community and shared relations that exceed the aspiration of the academy, right? That's, that's what I would say. And what that usually means is that you become affiliated with a form of labor that, first of all, socializes your expertise, right? Meaning that your expertise now, um, your expertise and your fluencies are now uh, kind, of, kind of, they're at the disposal of a larger group of people. Right. Once you do that, it changes your whole relationship to what you do, to the knowledge and the art and the beauty you produce, to all the making that you've been engaged in. Because what the academy does, it tries to make you individual. Right. I mean, that's that's part of this. Right. Is that the, the academy tries to individualize all this labor. And that's what tenure means. That's what a CV is. That's what promotion is. OK, so we get that. Right. It's that kind of individualizing apparatus. It's at the heart of fucking humanism. You know, what I mean, um, it's the heart of the very notion of the university. So, like, let's put that aside and understand it for what it is. And let's think about what I'm trying to push for here, which is let's seize on those spaces as a way to kind of cultivate and catalyze another kind of collectivity, community and sharing of creativity. So what changed, what I see changing for me anyways, I'll speak for myself, but I also speak for people close to me. What I see changing for a lot of us is once our, our, our capacities to produce knowledge, art, beauty, aesthetic, pedagogy, curriculum, et cetera, once they are suddenly at the disposal of a larger community of people, and that community could be 10 people, right? Our whole relationship to knowledge production and creativity changes. Everything, everything about it changes. And, and part of that is that we can now kind of call on each other, you know, um, to 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 share the expertise with people beyond the university and college space, um, and, and to also mobilize it in a way that authorizes other knowledge producers and creators to get center to get center floor to get the microphone. You know what I mean to. Um, to be able to, to circulate and produce their stuff in, in a broader sense. It's, there's a kind of enabling enabling role that people can play in this. Um, it's also very humbling, you know what I mean? It, to be, yeah. It's very humbling to be in that kind of sense of shared community with each other. Absolutely. I think, I think that shared community, the collectivism is so important. It reminds me, especially coming out of the Black radical tradition, as, as Robin Kelly's written, that a lot of Black radicals reappropriated the university's resources uh, to further their struggle either within or outside um, their broader struggles. And although I can go go on and ask more, I wanna, I know we have to wrap up, so I wanna ask the final closing question, which is asked to everyone uh, sitting in your chair, what gives you hope today? So, so I'm, I'm gonna play with your question like, like I have been for the last, you know, 50 minutes, <laughs> if you don't mind. So I'll say, I'll say it's both hope. Um, there's something that gives me both hope, but which also um, gives me some critical pause. That's how I'll phrase it, right? It's not pessimism, it's not skepticism, it's not really suspicion, it's more pause. It's more of a critical pause. I mean, I gotta I gotta take a breath, I gotta stop for a second, I gotta think. That's what I mean by critical pause. So here's the thing. Th- th- there's a circulation in recent months, I would say, in recent months, there's a circulation and traction that the term abolition has earned among a lot of different people. Um, and, and it's earned that traction as, as a form of organizing, meaning as an organizing practice. It's earned that traction as what people identify as a radical 
maybe revolutionary, maybe liberatory, something, right? Something along those lines, right? A vision of social disruption and transformation, something like that, right? I'm being loose with my words, but but people are kind of grabbing onto it because they they identify that's what abolition really means. It means that shit is not going to continue, right? Business as usual, the normative is not going to be allowed to uh, remain intact. You know, I think that's what has given it traction. Um, it's 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 I think in the best cases gain traction as uh, a form of collective thought, practice, and being that challenges the normalized genocidal anti-Black and colonial violence of the state, um, that gives me a ton of hope uh, because it wasn't more than maybe a couple years ago where to bring forward the term abolition in a lot of progressive left-leaning and even like radical, self-identified radical circles of scholars, activists, community organizers, et cetera, um, would, 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 would kind of provoke a lot of dismissal, provoke a lot of caricaturing responses and just disavowal, right? And it was, you know, it happened too much. It just happened, it just wasn't, in other words, it wasn't really taken seriously as um, a feasible way to do shit right now, you know? Um, now, now, you still see strains of that. Um, I mean, I think we need to be clear. Like you still see folks who think about abolition as some kind of objective, which it's not, you know, abolition is a method. It's a pedagogy. It's a way of being. Um, it's not some kind of projected far down the line, you know, destination point. That's not what it is. So we just got, we got to be clear about that. Um, so I have a lot of hope in the fact that, that people now are engaging with abolition as a concept, as a term, as all the other things. Um, now, what at the same time gives me critical pause is what I see as um, the opportunism, the the um, the misinformation, the free revision of the concept, the appropriation of the term that's already happening among both academics and and various forms of of, of organized. Um, mobilization. Um, that troubles me because on the one hand, I see the term being seized by people and organizations that historically have been entirely anti or at least counter abolitionist in their work, in their words, in their thought, in their production, right? Like these are folks who they've not been on the side of abolition until now. Okay. So on the one hand, I'm hopeful that means they really are on the fucking side of abolition now. I want that. Like, I hope you are. Right. But when I see that 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 people are putting abolitionist as a Twitter handle, you know, what I'm saying like they're putting I mean, me, not, not, as, not as their handle, as their as their as their um, as the self description that comes after their Twitter handle. Right. They'll, they'll say, oh, abolitionist. It's like, nah, man, here's the, here's the thing I've been saying over and over again, Alex, for the last for last year. There's no such thing as a fucking individual abolitionist. No, it doesn't exist. Right. This is this is part of the sense of like obligation and responsibility that comes with it. Like. You know, when I say I'm engaged in abolition struggle, what I mean is that I am I am like humbled, I'm honored, I'm grateful to be part of like this long historical community, you know, and it's internally complex and contested. It's not like just one way of thinking, right? But it's like I'm part of, I, I've been invited and I've participated and I've tried to give myself over to this long tradition, this long historical complex tradition of people who are engaged in abolitionist struggle, abolitionist, you know, debate and, 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 and argument and mobilization when I... That means you have a collective and shared responsibility. You know what I mean? Like you, it's, it's a it's a position of, of of significant humility. At the same time, it's also significant responsibility because when you've been in that shit, now I've realized that I've been openly engaged with abolitionist work with communities of people for more than twenty years, right? So I'm old as fuck in a certain kind of way. You know, I'm forty seven years old, full transparent, forty seven years old. But I but in some ways, like I I have like different folks who maybe the same biological age as me. But they're calling on me out of a sense of pulling on my on my what I'm calling my shared responsibility. Right. They're calling on me. They're calling on me. They're, they're saying you are responsible for having been in this for so long. You need to put that shit out there. That's why I do stuff like your podcast. Right. It's both because I have to admit I enjoy it. Right. I love being here talking to you. I love being, you know, have, having having this feeling of importance. It gives me like I can't lie. It makes me feel good. But the, but 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 I like to think that part of this is also coming from a sense of shared responsibility. Like I owe it to the communities of people who I'm part of to try to push these ideas out in a way that is, that is reflecting that shared responsibility and obligation. And which is also challenging some of what is giving me pause, 
right? Which is I hear I hear folks referring to I hear folks using phrases like incremental abolition, right? That, that it's a it's a, it's an oxymoron. It's entirely reflective of the kind of reformist genius that I'm talking about is part of academia and civilization with a capital C, right? It's to appropriate these terms and turn them into the opposite, right? Um, and, and I see folks who are invoking a kind of professional identity as abolitionist uh, because I think it's there's an opportunity that comes with that. There's a professional kind of traction that might right now come with that. But you can bet your ass that these are not folks who would have done the same thing two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And to the extent abolitionist becomes, you know, criminalized, dismissed, repressed, caricatured, et cetera, folks will no longer identify with that. So like I, it's hope and it's critical pause, but I think it's both all the time. We got to keep that critical analysis. We got to keep that with our, with, with, you know, with our communities, with ourselves all the time. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's a, that's a perfect response. And it, it, the same thing gives me both hope and, and mm-hmm. pause. Um, but understanding, as you mentioned, both the collective, responsibility, the collective action, as well as the long historical um, struggle that's been ongoing, that this isn't something new that emerged in the past 12 months, but abolition has been something that's been part of the world for 200, 300 years, um, longer in in various forms. I want to thank you again for taking the time, for sharing, um, for being in conversation. This has given me so much to think about. Hopefully it's given our listeners something to think about, mull over, and and learn more about. I appreciate being invited. I, I love this uh, this kind of format. I like the long conversation format. Um, I hope I contribute something to y'all's collective thinking. And um, reach out to me anytime you want. Join a Cops Off Campus chapter if there's one near you. Start one if you can. Um, it's just Google cops off campus. The coalition stuff is up. Uh, we need to get rid bare minimum. We got to get rid of police presence on a police power on our campuses. So, so be in it. Um, and, and, and if you can't reach, if you can't reach folks, just just feel free to reach out to me. I'm easy to find. Just hit me up on Twitter, on Instagram, on email, whatever it is. And um, I'll try to hook you all up. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Um, we look forward to you being with us for our next episode.